This is Weekend Magazine, a special news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers with an invitation to stay tuned as we focus on topics of interest that impact your life. We start off the program with a recent interview featuring the ongoing fundraiser known as Daffodil Days, the 38th annual event presented by the Presbyterian Healthcare Foundation. It's to raise money for the ongoing development of the Robert Wertheim Hospice House. We pick up our conversation where we left last weekend with the Foundation's Julie Bowditch and Doyle Boykin. The money that we collect from Daffodil Days is vitally important to the success of this program. I mean, the building has been paid for and now the fundraising will go to support the operations. There will be um, aides and nurses in the building 24-7 able to deliver care and a variety of other professionals and volunteers who will come in and, and help support the program. We estimate the operation of the program to cost us around a half a million dollars a year and so money coming in from daffodils will, will go a long way to help support and, and pay for those salaries in the operations. We do plan to charge a room and board for this service, but we know that not everyone will be able to pay that room and board, and that will not be an excluding factor from keeping someone in. Fundraising will be critical for those who cannot make that room and board payment. It really makes our daffodil fundraising even more important because it is such a wonderful and vital addition to our community. And we're very excited about it, and Daffodils is always a very fun event and kind of heralds spring coming to to us. Um, but it's even more important because this is such, such important work necessary in our community. About how many on average do you sell in a typical fundraising event? I think the number is about 180,000. It's easier to visualize a semi-truck, a refrigerator van full of boxes of daffodils. And it's box and box and box that we take out and prep and make make flowers. It's pretty exciting also to see the warehouse after we've prepped and before they go out because it is honestly a sea of flowers starting to bloom. So cheerful and it's gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. It makes all the work a joy. And where are these grown? They're grown either in Washington or Oregon, depending on the year. People's Flowers has been a sponsor since the beginning of Daffodil Days, 38 years ago, and they help us with our order and getting the flowers. And then they get them delivered to People's, and then we put them on our van and head on out to the prep site and start our work. And what kind of mileage can a buyer expect to get from these daffodils? They usually last about a week. Daffodils start looking a little droopy after that, but usually a week is fair, 10 days if you're lucky. And it kind of depends on the year and the weather in that year, because sometimes we, we've had some really small daffodils before, and we have had some giant, unbelievably beautiful ones that it just kills you to, to cut the stems off to get them to, to wake up again. They're gorgeous. And so we're hoping for a gorgeous set of flowers this year. I think the weather has been more conducive. As uh, one of the leaders of the hospice team, we frequently get comments from the 
community letters, phone calls about the wonderful care they received, both they, the family, and their loved one while on hospice care. Just a reminder that it's an opportunity for all of us who've experienced hospice services, either locally or in another state. This is a way you can pay that forward. Daffodils not only bring some cheer to your your work site or your home, but the the money that uh, you contribute is going straight to hospice house and another family will benefit from it. So just ask that you think about that and and offer some uh, cheer uh, both to yourself and some uh, support to those in need. That was Doyle Boykin and Julie Bowditch with the Presbyterian Healthcare Foundation. The 38th annual Daffodil Days fundraiser runs through March 19th. Learn all about it at our website, newsradiokkob.com. Now, the weekend magazine rambles on with a special item of entertainment value, but involving another fundraising promotion. It's a star-studded event, a first called the Food for Love Virtual Concert this Saturday evening, February 13th at 5 p.m. However, if you miss it, it's available to enjoy during the 48 hours afterwards. Here's one of the co-founders of the effort, Bill Banowski. We're pretty excited about it. We've got a lot of really big-name performers who have signed on to this cause, which is to uh, address the hunger needs in New Mexico, which has gotten worse during COVID. We have a free concert on Valentine's Eve that will start at 5 o'clock New Mexican time. We'll have Jackson Brown and Joe Ely and David Byrne, Steve Earle, Kurt Vile, the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. We'll have over 60 artists who are giving of their time generously and their talents to participate in this virtual concert. We will air it on YouTube and on our website, foodforlove.org, for 48 hours from when we start the concert. The concert will start February 13, Valentine's Eve at 5 p.m. Mountain Time. This is huge. It must take a lot of preparation to get this together. Well, we started working on this back in May, I suppose. Susan and I live here in Santa Fe. A couple of our friends, Terry and Joe Harvey Allen, we were Zooming with them one day in May talking about things to do. And Terry and Joe Harvey had this idea of doing a concert to raise money to feed the hungry in New Mexico. And Susan and I thought that was a fabulous idea. Attracted uh, another Santa Fe and Steve Feinberg who joined our group of five uh, organizers. And then we went to work putting this together, meeting every week by Zoom and just laying the bricks in the wall until we have this concert. And kind of crazy how it come together and and what a big event it appears to uh, be shaping up to be. I love the idea that even if you miss the actual concert at 5 p.m. New Mexico time Saturday, you can listen in on the website for 48 hours. That's right. And concert's coming in at under five hours. So it is a lot, a lot of music. And we have special guests, George R.R. R. Martin, author of Game of Thrones, Ali McGraw, Governor Lujan Grisham, and many others. And so we think there's going to be something for everyone to enjoy, whether you stay for the whole five hours or come in and out and take little bites of it during the 48 hours that we have it up. I like that. Take a bite of it uh, regarding food for love. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, very good. A lot of big names involved, a lot of work and effort and sweat going into it, obviously. And I'm sure it's going to be appreciated. Where can we learn more about it? Give us the site. So foodforlove.org. Please join us. That was Bill Banowski, one of the co-founders of the virtual concert, Food for Love. Check it out at the website, foodforlove.org. I'm your host, News Radio KKOB's John Summers. The Weekend Magazine isn't finished yet. Oh no, there's lots more to come. 
Let's turn our attention to the Gauntlet of Truth now with Jeffrey Candelaria, the host of the 96.3 News Radio KKOB Saturday afternoon show, heard from 2 to 5 p.m. The truth is never convenient. You are now going through the Gauntlet of Truth with Jeffrey Candelaria on 96.3 News Radio KKOB. All right, folks, you're going to want to tune into this next hour here and our guest, a nationally recognized thought leader and best-selling author. Uh, his latest uh, offering as far as authorship is Let's Talk Social Equality, Race, and Religion in Politics. And the Gauntlet of Truth is all about trying to search for this elusive thing called truth, or at least different interpretations of what we think truth is. And so we're going to talk about the very provocative and often uh, inflammatory topic of race, ethnicity, social equality in America. And my question is fairly rhetorical, but I'd like you to chime in. Do you think America is intrinsically racist as much of our population is trying to propagate that we are an intrinsically racist, oppressive nation. I don't agree with that uh, mindset. Should we define ourselves like at least perhaps half of our population suggests based on our skin color or where we were born? Absolutely not. I don't agree with that. But uh, at this point, I'd like to bring in Rafe Andonian, best-selling uh, author, and we're going to talk about his book, Let's Talk Social Equality, Race, and Religion in Politics. Welcome to the Gauntlet of Truth, uh, Mr. Andonian. Thank you, Jeffrey. So let's start with uh, what prompted you to write write a book about social equality, race, and religion in politics. That's one of the things we don't do around the uh, dinner table, right, is talk politics. But what, what motivated you to write write this book? Sure. So, so um, what motivated me was because I often look at things with a historical lens, and I'm fascinated by the topic of how we look at the past and how we use the past in the present. And I think when we talk about what this country is about and what social equality is about and what we believe about race or religion, which are a couple of hot topics, is often intertwined with what we believe about the past in the United States. And so part of what I try to do with the book is try to surprise us a little bit. I don't think history has a bias toward being left or right. I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's very nuanced, and I know you appreciate nuance, Jeffrey. And, and so part of what I try to do is show, okay, well, even on this hot topic that is, you know, um, relevant right now, but also very um, hot, you know, very um, contentious issue, it's complicated. And when we look at the past, we might be surprised at what we find. Yeah, absolutely. And, for example, I was just reading something about Jefferson and uh, Madison and Hamilton. And, and, you know, these folks wrote not only, Jefferson not only wrote the Declaration of Independence, but later collectively they wrote the Constitution. And then later after that, they wrote the Bill of Rights because they recognized that, think about that, Rafi, even within the space of about 10, 15 years, these founders, you know, uh, among the three and, and more, recognized the country was already changing so much in a 10-year period that they needed to not only write up the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, but then later, about 10 years later, the Bill of Rights to guarantee things like free speech 
you know, the uh, ability to, to, to defend oneself with weapons. So the country was in flux that quickly after its inception, after 1776. Absolutely, and I'd, I'd add to what you're saying and, then, and say that part of the reason the Bill of Rights is created and established is because there were certain founding fathers that were opposed to the Constitution. And that's interesting for us to hear, but I think certain founding fathers being opposed, well, there were many reasons, there were many reasons for that, but one of the reasons that some people gave for being opposed was that they did not believe it actually um, protected enough rights explicitly. And so the Bill of Rights came in to help address that concern, to help the Constitution gain um, acceptance, if you will, across the uh, population and leadership. And so that's, and so it's exactly what you said. Things were in flux, and the Bill of Rights was a tool to help accomplish uh, making things less in flux. <laughs> yeah. But I think the founders had intended that the Constitution, particularly a Bill of Rights, would would keep the nation engaged such that as the nation uh you know changes evolves devolves you know it's in these in these uh ebbs and flows of 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 governance and and its people that the bill of rights would also have a flexibility too to adjust to those different uh different conditions that change for example when the country was founded a lot of folks were were agrarian and then you had urbanization take place so you know people in cities that that changes but i want to stick to your book let's start with def- definitions what is social equality rafi well that's the fascinating thing is that we have been fighting that for with each other for at least 150 years and and um, um no, not nobody agrees on what social equality means yeah. And yeah. that term, social equality, has been something that we've been um, arguing over and trying to define over and over. And and I think we're going through that right now as well. Yeah, for me, and again, folks, my guest is uh, a national thought leader. He's calling from St. Louis, Missouri, and best-selling author, Rafi Andonian. He's written a book called the Let's Talk Social Equality, Race, Religion, and Politics. Do you think America is intrinsically racist? I don't. And do you think we should define ourselves, our destinies, based on our skin color? So, you know, Rafi, one of the things I talk about at length uh, with my wife and others who want to hear me is I think the country should provide every citizen with opportunity, equal opportunity, for that individual citizen to pursue their own version of, of happiness. I don't think it's a good idea that we legislate opportunity based on skin color or when where people were born what are your thoughts it, it just depends on what philosophy you have right so i mean my thoughts are it depends on the era it depends on the situation um i think that certainly as, as we talked about before you can have different lived experiences with different identities but then the question becomes you know what is the appropriate opportunity um and what is considered equal opportunity i don't know um, I don't know if a lot of people want necessarily equal outcomes always, as long as they feel that there has been a fair process, right? And I think that's what you're, go- you're getting at, is that, yeah. you know, um, if there's been a fair process on opportunity, there may be unequal outcomes, but if that process is fair and we all have an equal shot, then, you know, um, then we feel that justice is, is available, right, is apparent. So I guess my answer is a little... Is a, is a little mixed because i think it depends on the case it depends on the situation you know i I have a hard time saying one blanket answer 
And I think that's why this term social equality has been argued over for 150 years. And, and, and it's not something easy to settle, but I think if we understand that there are different definitions, then it begins to take us toward a path of dialogue. Yeah, I guess it's, the way I put it is, if I were running a bank and I had a thousand employees, I would right. run it based on a meritocracy, and I would want the ve- the best thousand folks I could have in my bank. I don't care how many black people I have. I don't care how many Hispanic people I have. I don't care how many white people. I want the best thousand folk. And a lot of folks criticize me because I tend to embrace a meritocracy. The military used to be based on meritocracy. The 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 persons that have capacity to, to move up the chain are the leaders, the colonels, the generals. I just don't believe in the idea of legislating uh, meritocracy uh, based on skin color or the fact that somebody was born in a lower middle class area of Chicago. So I feel like I've got to have so many you know, African-American people from lower Chicago in my bank. So those two philosophies don't seem to be reconcilable in today's america i think what i would like to see is probably more i mean you're, you're kind of touching on two issues there right there's sort of race and class and i think i i think class affects things um quite a bit you know and i think you're kind of touching on that and it may not always be um conflatable with race although those two things can be intersecting at certain points right um and so and so i think i mean one of the essays i cover in the in the book with social equality is there's an old labor rights organization called the Knights of Labor that is one of the most prominent organizations at the time and is still influential today, not in its organization, but in their platforms that are kind of incorporated in a lot of our policy. But my point is that, that um, um, it was a labor union that was across color lines. And there's a controversy that emerges of trying to determine if they stand for social equality just because they're going across color lines. And they say that, no, we don't. We want labor equality, but we are not for racial equality. And I find that really interesting because they're separating the two. And so they're saying we're against social equality, but we're for labor equality. And that's an interesting way to look at it because they're separating class out from broader social equality, right? Hmm. And so to me, that is kind of one of, the, one of the issues here is, are we talking about race or are we talking about class? What I appreciate about you and my guest is Rafi Andonian. He's calling in from St. Louis. He's a nationally recognized thought leader along these lines of topics, and he's written a book, a best-selling book, and, and he's also the author of Let's Talk, Social Equality, Race, and Religion and Politics. And, you know, before we continue, Rafi, one of the things I remember about your book is you talk about, and I'm quoting uh, from the introduction of your book, if we want to really engage in these conversations, I really don't like that word, but a dialogue, a real give and, and give and take, a real dialogue about race, ethnicity, oppression, slavery, social equality, we have to remove ourselves, and I'm quoting from your book, we should remove ourselves from predetermined, con- predetermined conclusions and discover a past that was far more complex to begin with and expect complicated answers. I, I love that, and that's from your book. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, then that, that's exactly what I think is so powerful about the past is that is that it, it doesn't fit neatly into one box of what we already think going into it. I think we have to be open to understanding that it's complicated and surprising, and that can affect at least us being not so certain about what we think about whatever we think. And I think what's one of the things that's really wonderful about that is that 
it helps you ask questions even to yourself. It helps you think about what you're seeing around you in a more nuanced way that is not so sure that this is a black and white, this is the only way to see something. Yeah, and sometimes the answers aren't that simple. You know, they're complex. It's like the pursuit of happiness. I'm writing an op-ed. I hope it'll appear in the journal the next month. The pursuit of happiness, based on whether you were talking to Jefferson, Hamilton, uh, Madison, uh, Benjamin Franklin, they had even different interpretations of what that meant. In my opinion, the pursuit of happiness is up to me, Jeffrey Candelaria. It's not up to the government to to legislate my destiny. But half of America seems to think that pursuit of happiness has to be legislated by government. I don't agree with that. Now, those half, the 150 million Americans who voted for Biden, if they believe that, that's their truth. They can they can they can like that or or espouse that. But I don't I don't happen to agree with it. And the fact that I don't agree with it, I shouldn't be vilified for having that interpretation of what pursuit of happiness is. Well, I agree certainly in the sense that nobody should be vilified, right? Because otherwise we're shutting down the, the exchange of dialogue and trying to understand that there's more than one way to view something. And certainly, certainly, you know, people can have their opinions that they hold on to. I think what the past does is that it helps us see that Maybe it's not the same answer in every single situation. Maybe that um, there isn't one obvious thing where mine is absolutely true and the other guy is a complete idiot that is evil and trying to do horrible things. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that will help the conversation some because what happens, I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were disagreeing on what the pursuit of happiness means. And I, I... that doesn't mean that one person was evil. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. and, and, and it means that there were different opinions even back then. And, oh, absolutely. And that's valuable because we have different opinions today, and it's been like that for hundreds of years. Yeah, you know? people don't recognize the founders had their own contentious relationships. John Adams and Jefferson didn't talk for about 30 years until they were about a week you know, from their deaths. There are different ways we divide, right? So there might be, like you've been touching on ethnicity, for example. You can talk about race, which the definitions of which have changed over time. The lines where we draw those have changed over time. Emphasizing skin color is something more recent in world history than it was before. There are times our division has been by language. Sometimes it's been by political organization. And and there were not nations before the last few hundred years. There were different systems that were organized. Certainly there's always been division. But where we draw the lines of where those divisions have been, and then later how we handle those divisions are what are distinctive about each particular era, right? Yeah. And our conversation here is about how do we handle some of those different categories that we put together in front of us, and how do we talk through that? The fact that sometimes the terminology is very controversial, too. The term social equality, again, forget the definition. Just using the term often elicits a lot of emotional response, and that was true back back in the 19th century and is true today. I promise I'll have you back and resurrect these uh, topics. They're not going away. Thank you, Rafi. This is Jeffrey Candelaria, the Gauntlet of Truth. Have a great remainder of your weekend. That was 96.3 News Radio KKOB's Saturday afternoon talk show host, Jeffrey Candelaria, taking you through the gauntlet of truth. Be sure to hear his program every Saturday from 2 to 5 p.m. Up next, we hear a recent interview from The Bob Clark Show, featured weekday mornings on 96.3 News Radio KKOB. He and traffic reporter Candy Cruz discuss the recent shooting of a New Mexico State Police officer by a violent criminal with New Mexico Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales. We join in now with their conversation.
The family of Slayton, New Mexico police officer Darian Jarrett, they released statements to give us an idea more about who he was and the love that was in his heart and the love for his family, his children, and also his community there in Lordsburg and Deming in that area where uh, he chose to to be a, a state police officer and wanted to be assigned to his home area to protect his community. And that is also uh, the home area of our Lieutenant Governor, Howie Morales, many years serving in the state Senate representing Southwest New Mexico. And he joins us now here on 96.3 News Radio KKW. Lieutenant Governor, thanks for your time this morning. And look, I know obviously this is a very tight knit community. He was born and raised there, was a, uh, he played on the high school football team. Uh, he chose to stay there and be a New Mexico State Police Officer to help protect his community. Tell, tell us a little bit about the impact all of this is having on you and, and everybody else in that part of New Mexico. Yeah, first, first of all, I want to say thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share a little bit about Officer Jarrett and just to share the perspective from the impact in southwest New Mexico. Um, it, it was definitely something that um, caught us all in, in a way that just impacted every person, not only from southwest part, but across the state and across the country. Sure. And when I went over there and had the opportunity to visit the family, to have discussions with community members, um, Officer Jared is regarded consistently by people as a hero, uh, not only for the work that he was doing for us on the front lines there as an officer, but just throughout his whole life, a protector, a provider, a fun-loving uh, person who was just fun to be around. And that's why I think that there's such an impact because the person just had that energy that just translated to other people. And and it was heartbreaking to see, but it also was very gratifying for the family to see the outpouring of love and support and the memories of Officer Jarrett come in. Uh, You knew him, did you not? Yeah, I followed him through as uh, he was a state champion uh, football player there in Lordsburg. And we just followed the athletic career, follow him throughout, uh, him and others throughout there their time as a Lordberg Maverick. Um, and then he, he moved on over into the Carlsbad Hobbs area. So um, he spent many years there as well uh, upon returning back to southwestern Mexico, serving the Deming and Lordberg area. Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales with us here on 96.3 News Radio KKOB. And, you know, Lieutenant Governor, obviously when you're talking about the larger metro areas here in the state of New Mexico, especially Albuquerque, no matter how much effort's put into, quote, community policing, it's it's always a little more difficult to have our officers make a personal connection as widely as Officer Jared apparently did so in Deming in the Lordsburg area. Uh, I can't imagine there weren't many people there that didn't know him or at least knew of him and saw him every day. Yeah, you're correct. And when you have a small community um, that, that makes up Hidalgo County and Lordsburg um, of about 2,500 people, uh, everyone knows everyone. Everyone has a connection. But it really did extend out into other communities. And I think that that was just uh, the remembrance of him, his family members, his mother working there at the Port of Entry, um, being a, a, a member of, of that family as well was very connected with state police. His uncle, who is a state policeman, was with Mortar Transit Department for, for many years and still is employed by them. And then his father, who in, in Lordsburg, you don't have many restaurants, but the hub restaurant there, uh, Cranberries, where he was the lead uh, chef on there and um, just knowing everyone, it definitely had a connection everywhere. And you can see when you had those uh, memories that were coming up, it always came back to the family. It always came back to the connections that they had with people one way or another. And that translated into the connections Jared, uh, Officer Jared had with 
people across the region. And obviously, you're talking about deep ties to the community. So that, that, that's a big reason for that. Yeah, absolutely. Deep ties, many years, uh, many generations. And I think when you saw the press conference that was done and um, Officer Thornton um, showed the emotion and the impact, it really showed the huge loss that's there by the loss of Officer Jarrett. Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales with us here on 96.3 News Radio KQB. And, and one final note, uh, Lieutenant Governor, obviously any time we have one of our law enforcement uh, officers killed in the line of duty in New Mexico, it's very tragic. But when you look at the circumstances of this case specifically, just uh, you know, 28 years old with three young children and a fourth child on the way, uh, I mean, when, you, when you've had a, an opportunity to meet with the family, I can't even begin to imagine what they're trying to deal with right now. Surprisingly, they they were uh, they were strong and and definitely impacted. Uh, but I think with the love of people around them, their law enforcement family was there when I happened to to be there visiting with the family. Um, they they seemed to be comforted. But we all know how it sits in, especially after services take place, especially after the months go on. That's where more support is going to be needed more than ever. For me, the most impactful um, moment was meeting his eight-year-old daughter, and her shoulders just dropped and just uh, in tears. And being a parent myself, just can't imagine the hurt and the, the sadness and the fear that she's experiencing. So those prayers, those thoughts, those condolences, they go a long way, not just now, but making sure that we never forget the life of Officer Jarrett. Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales, thank you, sir, very much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That was a tribute from Lieutenant Governor Howie Morales during the Bob Clark Morning Show, highlighting the heroic life of State Police Officer 28-year-old Darian Jarrett, recently shot and killed in the line of duty by a person authorities say was a violent drug dealer. You've just heard Weekend Magazine, a special news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers, inviting you to join us again next weekend as we highlight topics that impact your life.